We are on week 51 of the book of Acts, and it's the last week of Acts. Acts 28, 51 weeks to get through 28 chapters. How about that? I always, when I come to the end of a book, it's always somewhat sad, but it's a great, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great accomplishment to, to get through it and be done with it. And um, haven't run. Some of you are still here. You were here at the beginning. You're still here at the end, which is wonderful. Acts 28. Well, as you know, Acts 27, Paul was in this uh, getting from point A to point B. You see it on the overhead there. Point A is uh, uh, Caesarea, which is down in your far right of your screen in the green area. Caesarea down there called Caesarea Maritime uh, because it's uh, right on the coast. There are other Caesareas, but uh, this is Caesarea Maritima. Anyway, you see the red line and the way, uh, the, way the, the ship moves from Caesarea. It's supposed to go to Rome, and it makes it to Rome, but uh, it's going to take a lot longer than they ex- anticipated. You go up through that alleyway above Cyprus, a little north of Cyprus. They get another ship there at the, on the, the southern coast of modern Turkey, and then they make their way down on the, on the southern side of Crete. Uh, they should have wintered there, but uh, they, they felt a good wind, and they thought, we can make it. Uh, got out to sea and uh, didn't. Um, by the time they, uh, that squiggly line over in the middle of the sea, they are uh, now lost, don't know where they are. That's what it means to be lost, as you know. And uh, it's a 14-day trip, and they finally arrive. We'll see in chapter 28 uh, of Malta, this little island of Malta. But up to this point, uh, Paul has had to tell the people, look, you made a wrong decision. God has told me, he stood next to me, an angel of the Lord stood next to me and told me that we are going to get there. Um, everyone's, uh, no one's going to die as long as you do what I say. Uh, no one can flee the ship and we're going to make it to our destination. And so they do. They listen to Paul. And remember, he's a prisoner. Who listens to a prisoner on board? It's become evident that Paul's God is the Lord God and even the centurion who's in charge of the ship realizes that Paul knows a thing or two and they stay with him. And he's going to benefit from that as well as they, uh, everyone's going to benefit from it. In fact, I want you to see that tonight is everyone benefits from a great leader whose God is the Lord. And in this case, it's Paul. He's got his two buddies on board with him, at least two, Aristarchus and Luke, who was the writer of this gospel. So chapter 28, verse 1, when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Safely through, meaning they finally, they've finally they left the ship. The ship, ship ran aground. Uh, the surf beat the ship to pieces. It falls to pieces. The 276 passengers, which are prisoners, they make their way to the island. And that's what he says, when they had been brought safely through, then we found out the island was called Malta. So uh, here's uh, the island of Malta, over, overhead view. And it's very tiny, uh, satellite view. You'll see um, right here, can you see the, the uh, squiggly thing I've got moving around? Yeah, how about that? Pretty, that's pretty nifty. This right here is traditionally where they came in. This is called, even today, it's called St. Paul's Bay. The port is actually over here, so anyone who's coming into port would come into here then and now. But their ship came into here. Here it is here, a little, little more colorful one. Um, here's St. Paul's Bay as you come into it today. Beautiful pictures. Um, someone must have taken a snapshot way back when, but uh, there it was. So they come into to Malta. Um, the natives, the Greek word there is barbaroi, barbaroi, which means barbarian, uh, and it's an onomatopoeia. And anytime I get a chance to talk about onomatopoeia, I do because I love the word so much. <laughs> it sounds like you're stuttering. Bar, 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 barbarian. People that, but it doesn't necessarily mean people without education. It doesn't necessarily mean people that are, uh, are idiots or fools. In fact, these people seem to have it all together. Some of your translations may say the islanders. I think the NIV does. Or the natives, that would be the people of, of Malta, showed us extraordinary kindness. In fact, you run aground in some unknown island, you could be eaten by cannibals, quite literally. So that they came across, I want to say, luck, God was guiding them the whole way. So they showed them extraordinary kindness, kindness to a bunch of prisoners. All these prisoners, imagine if you're on the shore one day of Malta, and uh, you're out with the family, and by the way, it's, it's wintertime, probably not a lot of sunbathers at this point, but here's a ship, and you're watching it fall to pieces out there. That looks like a slave ship, or a, or a prisoner ship, I should say. Huh. All the people are now coming to the island. 276 people on an island this small, 
You've got to feed these people. You've got to house these people. They welcomed them with great kindness. For because of the rain that had set in, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So that was the way they received them warmly. There's rain, it's cold, and they all get together and they start assembling wood for the fire. Paul, not being too good to gather wood for the fire, verse 3, when he had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. You ever done that? You ever bent down? Hey, that looks like a good stick, and it moves. You ever, have you ever, anyone ever had that experience? You picked... I've done it. I've done it before. I've, I've mowed my mower many, on many occasions, too many occasions, to kind of mow it through. And you look down between you and the mower, and there is something moving. Pull that thing back over. You know, the thing goes, you know, on the, on the, the rest of the day, anything moves you like this. Yeah, yeah really, that's, that's what it's supposed to. got to keep you awake, Charlie. Anyway, picks up a snake, and this is important because... Uh, the natives saw the creature, verse 4, when hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. They knew all the people on board. I mean, would you have not been watching your back while picking up sticks to, to make this fire? Who are you? Where's he? Where's so-and-so? Man, he looks bad. And then you see Paul with a snake hanging off his, his hand, and they're going, justice has not allowed him to live. Um, in some translations, justice is capitalized. The Greek word is dike. Um, it's known to be a god. It's thought to be the, the god of justice. It's personified here. And that is, he might have gotten off the ship, but uh, justice is going to get him with this snake. So uh, here's uh, just a little picture I came across. Um, liberals today have said, well, this can't be true because there are no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta. So let's just close the Bible and move on. What are we doing wasting our time with this? Um, there are, however, constrictors on the island today. Uh, so it appears that over the past 1950 years or whatever it may be that the islanders have expunged the poisonous snakes from the island. Would that be okay to assume? <laughs> Pretty sure. I mean, you don't, you don't ever listen to people that are trying to make the Bible um, non-historical, unreal. Uh, well, he doesn't cook it. <laughs> he just throws it into the fire. Uh, justice has not allowed him to live. While they're waiting for him to die, verse 5, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after he had waited for a long time, they had waited a long time and seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Uh, Paul's had that happen before uh, in, in uh, Acts chapter 14. Now, go over, if you will, to uh, just take a left. And go to Mark chapter 16. I believe it's verse 15. Mark 15? Yeah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Mark. Mark 16, verse 15. I think it's 15. Now I want you to note, in all of your Bibles, Mark, the writer Mark, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, ended this Gospel at verse 8. That is where Mark's gospel ends. Listen to me. Verses 9 through 20 are not John Mark. He did not write that. These were, this is added later. In fact, you know it because we're looking at the Greek text of Mark and looking at the Greek text of verses 9 to, to 20 uh, is, is like reading uh, something that I would write and then something that Cheryl would write or something that Jose would write or something that Tyler might write. We all write differently. It's completely different using words that were never used in Mark's gospel anywhere ever. So here, here's what someone came along and didn't like Mark's very abrupt ending where they saw the tomb and they were gripped with fear. And so they added. In fact, all of your Bibles will either have it in or a bracketed or some footnote at the bottom. But Along the way, someone is adding, look, that you go through what just happened with Paul grabbing snakes. Let's see, Acts, it's not 16, 15, but it says, um, is it 18? Yeah, it's 18. Talking about supposedly quoting Jesus. None of it's heretical. It's not wrong per se, uh, but it's adding, it's taking some of what Matthew says and a little bit what Luke says and a little bit what happened like with, with Paul's God, with with Paul's travels, it says, These signs will accompany those who have believed, Mark 16, 17. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, this is 
brought about the beginning of a lot of messed up cultic churches. And there's been a lot of people that, you know, they, they have mangled hands. They've been bit by snakes so many times. Their hands are deformed. It's the snake handling movement. Just note that when you say, do I believe everything in the Bible? I do. I believe everything that Mark wrote. And, and this, these passages, 9 through 21, these, these verses don't even appear until the 4th century. 4th century manuscripts. They're not there in the earliest ones that we possess. So, but it appears that someone took what happened to Paul and added it there to this little addendum to Mark's gospel. So now that you're good and confused and you're going, wow, should I believe my Bible? What else is in the Bible that I shouldn't believe? There are some things added in addition. In fact, with the end of this passage, we'll look in verse 29. There's another passage that's added. It's not attestable in, in the best manuscripts that we have. But for now, let's move back to it. So Paul has shaken off the creature. The people thought that he was a terrible criminal. Now they think he's a god. They don't treat him as a god, or at least it's not reported that they do. Verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius. Publius is a very common name. He's a Roman authority, a Roman figure. Uh, Rome actually ruled over the island of Malta. And so it's a Roman province. And this particular man named Publius, he welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days, taking care of Paul, the prisoners. It's cold. It's winter. Ships are not sailing. That's why they were trying to winter for a while until they can sail on, verse 8. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. You've all been there, right? When you are that place, all you want to do is get out of that place, correct? And you wonder, will this last forever? In fact, this particular, uh, it's known what the name was. In fact, I, I can't pronounce the Latin of it, so I didn't even write it down for you. But it's known to have come from goat's milk, uh, contamination in goat's milk, a particular amoeba. And it lasted, um, in most cases, up to three and four months, and in some cases, three to four years. So you can imagine um, Publius Seeing something about Paul here uh, with the, the snake coming off his hand, not being affected, they know it's a poisonous snake. I mean, apparently the snake was so poisonous, they know the people that get bit by it are going to die. Paul doesn't die. They know there's something special about him. Julius, who is the centurion, might have said, yeah, that doesn't surprise me a bit. This man is a man of God. Publius might have thought, hey, if he's a man of God, will you come see my dad? Does that make Makes perfect sense to me as to why he might do that. My dad's been sick for however long. He's afflicted with a current fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him. And after he had prayed, he laid hands on him and healed him. So Paul is now endearing himself to the people of the island. He's been a blessing to everyone on the ship, including the crew, the prisoners. Now to the people on Malta. Now to the leader on Malta. Verse 9, after this... And by the way, it, Luke never mentions that Luke... Luke never mentions that Paul shared the gospel on this island. But Paul would never have healed anyone in the name of Jesus Christ without sharing the gospel. Seems pretty implied. Do you think Paul said, you know, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut for a while, stay out of trouble? Paul never did that, nor should anyone. I mean, about the gospel, we should all keep our mouth shut and stay out of trouble. But to share the gospel, not so much. So even though he, he never says that he shared the gospel, he's doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. He's preaching the gospel, no doubt. Verse 9, after this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. We might assume that everybody on the island that was sick came to Paul, and God gave him the power and the ability to cure them. In fact, the more I think about this chapter, this may have been the greatest three months of Paul's life, Paul's ministry. I mean, you ever, you ever had a time where you just needed a time to... To refresh, and Paul has been through the ringer up to this point. Two years in prison, uh, his people hate him. He's got no one. He's got no family, no no wife. He has friends. Uh, he gets on a ship. I mean, ship sailing on a on a prisoner ship for two weeks. I'm guess it's not the Carnival Cruise Line. He gets where he's going, or at least a big shipwreck. He gets off. It's cold. It's raining. You know, imagine you're, if it's cold and raining and you're in the sea, and you're trying to get to the island, you're going, what's waiting for me here, Lord? I mean, I, I know what's not waiting. A bathroom, a hot shower, a hot meal, and a home with my pillow. That's not there. And yet it seems as if God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this, this wonderful sabbatical. Sabbatical of sorts. We know he's going to be there for three months. 
And so people are, he endears himself to people. People love him. All the sick are made well. Uh, Verse 10, they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. That would have been a trip to get on the next ship and go, I enjoyed that time. And we love that for Paul because he hasn't really had anything where he could say that. I mean, even the places that he's left where he, was, where he had some success, he got, got beat up, his back whipped. He was in jail for a while. I mean, he might have converted some people and, and started a church, but he goes out beat up. There's always a price to be paid, not on Malta. At the end of three months, verse 11, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered on the island and which had the twin brothers for its figure. The twin brothers, by the way, are Castor and Pollux. These are the sons of Zeus. You know this, right? Uh, they're on their figurehead. In fact, you can probably these ships were named kind of like uh, hotels, you know, the, the Comfort Inn, the Drury Inn, whatever it might be. This is the, the one with the twin brothers. That's the ship we're on. It's, it's wintering on the island. Theirs is torn up. They're going to get on this, and they're going to finish their trip. After we had put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and a day later, a south winds sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. Look on the overhead. Uh, this is Syracuse today. Um, here it is in relation to, uh, to Malta, which is down here. Syracuse is right here. So you make the sail from here in Syracuse. You can see this is the tip of the boot of Italy, kicking Sicily. So is Syracuse here. Um, Going to move from, uh, it's not a, not a long trip. Uh, it's a Greek colony on the island of Italy, founded in 712 B.C. It's old. Only six miles across the strait from Sicily's uh, mainland as a, as a harbor, which required a south wind for ships to enter in. So you've got them from Malta here to Syracuse to Regium, and then up to Puteoli, which you'll go, and then to Rome. Um, Puteoli to Rome, picture Rome. Um, so let's move back to the text. I'll, I'll get back to the slide in just a second. But uh, they come into Rome. Let's see, verse 13, from there we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south winds bring up. Second day we came to Puteoli. There we found some brethren and invited to stay and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Seven days. Julius thinks so highly of the Apostle Paul, who is a prisoner being taken from Caesarea to Rome to stand before the emperor, he says, yeah, sure, you can go have seven days with your friends. I mean, I just think that's remarkable. He trusts him. Paul has no reason to run away. Paul wants to go. He's convinced Julius, that's where I need to go. The, the God that, that spoke to me back in 2311 said, that's where I'm going to go and said, I'm going to stand before Caesar. Verse 15, and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and the three ends to meet us. So here's what they do up here on this. Up here, Paul makes his way from Malta, Syracuse, Regium. Right when he gets here to Puteoli, here's Rome up here. A group of friends that knows Paul's coming, they make the 43-mile trip from Rome and meet him right here at three, right at this point. There are people that come from three taverns, which is 33 miles from Rome. Ten miles later, Paul is meeting people along the way. Now imagine that. You're, you're off in no man's land. He's never been here before. You're with a bunch of prisoners. You go, and all of a sudden, this group comes up, and they're Christian. They're not Romans. They're not the prisoners you've been hanging around with for the past month, for the past three and a half months. These are people from the church of Jesus Christ that Paul didn't start, but they come to greet him. Um, Cheryl and I, we broke, broke down years ago. We were on... And, uh, had a van that was given to us uh, from a, a deceased cousin of mine. It wasn't a very good van. And on the way home from, from Houston to, to Dallas, it broke down somewhere an hour from Dallas. Uh, we, had ba- we had babies. They were small. And uh, it was a, we got in this wrecker truck, which is the three, three-seater. And it was him, me, Cheryl, and the two babies. And so we, we went up to this Brahms. I think it's just right outside of Ennis. Do you know who Brahms is? Brahms is like a little heaven on earth. But uh, um, anyway, we get there, and, and I'm, out, I'm trying to make a phone call, and there's some guy out there with a gun. There's some guy out there with a gun, and with Cheryl's holding my two babies, our two babies. I'm trying to get a phone call just to get a record, get some help. Anyway, long story short, a friend of mine from Denton Bible Church named David Boots. 
David gets wind of, of what we're doing, and he sends, a, he sends a friend of ours, another guy, who drives down, and David makes this big old basket of stuff for us. Anyway, long story short, comes and picks us up, and we were greeted by friends, people that loved us, and we got into this safe truck, safe car, whatever it was, uh, outside of the wrecker, uh, gunman was gone, and this basket full of goodies. Not the same thing as Paul, but a refresher. Ah, oh, people that love us. We, not that crazy trailer uh, record guy. God bless him. I just didn't know him, and he was a little <laughs> guy with a gun and a small part. Anyway, I just I think of Paul and think, wow, what, what a refresher for this guy to be with God's people, and they come and meet him as they do. Uh, and that's at verse 15. The brethren came, they heard about us. They came there as far as the market of Appius and the three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Thank you, Lord. And he took courage. There are some people and some situations that just do that for us. You see certain someone, you're greeted with a hug, you're greeted with a smile, maybe after a day or a week or a year or 10 years where you haven't been, and Paul is now uh, encouraged, our great apostle. Verse 16, when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And he's always going to be with a, with a soldier up to this point. He's going to have a soldier chained to him. And he's going to write four epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And he's going to talk about the chain that's attached to him and another soldier when he writes this. After three days, let's move on to uh, when he comes to Rome. By the way, the population of Rome about this time is about two million. Half of which are slaves. Slaves didn't know this. They didn't know they comprised that much of the population. Uh, there would have been about a dozen or more synagogues, it is said. So there was a, definitely a Rome or a, a Jewish presence. Um, the Jews, if you recall, were expunged from Rome under Claudius around 49-ish. And they are now back uh, during the time of Nero. And so uh, they were gone and... Rome didn't distinguish between Jews and Christians. They were all Jews to them. But they're back. There's a Jewish presence. And Paul's going to talk to them. That's why he wants to go to the Jews. He always goes to the Jew first. The Republic is gone. It was under Julius Caesar. Dictatorship is now under Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68. Paul is arriving here around 61. So if you want a, a date, it's around A.D. 61. Verse 17 you might expect this after three months, after resting, no, it's three days later. Three days later, Paul is ready to invite the Jews in and let's talk. He's chained. He can't go to their synagogue, so they have to come him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, they began saying to them, or he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now stop there for a second. Paul has already written the letter to the Romans. He wrote that right when he left Corinth, uh, and before he went to Jerusalem, when he got in all the trouble, he got in jail, and he comes out of here, he's already written the letter to Romans. And if you've ever read Romans 16, are there a few Christians he thanks and sends greetings to? There's a bunch, a lot of strange names. Paul knows all kinds of Christians there. That's not who he's talking to. He didn't invite the church. He invited the Jews. Paul always takes the gospel to the Jews first. And so he's telling them, um, here's what happened. Uh, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans, verse 18, and when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. Paul is saying I had no accusation against my nation. I hadn't done anything wrong. The Jews accused me. Nothing was found to be substantial. Verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am right, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Uh, that stuck out to me as I studied this week, the chain. Chain. I think that's significant. The cross is significant of Christ. The chain is significant of Paul. He's always talking about his chains. The chains. The chain that holds him. And he says, I requested to see you to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain. Why? For the sake of the hope of Israel. Israel's hope, folks, is a Messiah. That's what they all hoped for. That's what they were looking for. The Old Testament told them they would have a Messiah. Um, Moses said, someone like me will come to you. You get the predictions of it throughout the Old Testament prophets. They're looking for that. That's the hope of Israel. Not only a Messiah, but resurrection. 
Because if you're looking for the Messiah and your people are dead 700 years prior, you expect that they're going to be raised from the dead. The Old Testament teaches that resurrection. I've got a slide here in a minute to tell you a little bit more. Here it is right here. It's the next one. Uh, Paul had spoken before the Sanhedrin saying, Brothers or brethren, I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. When he spoke in chapter 23, verse 6. Job chapter 19, verses 26 to 27 speaks of a resurrection. Job said, In my flesh I will see God. I may die, but in my flesh, one day I will see God. Isaiah 26, 19 speaks of a resurrection. Daniel 12, 2 speaks of a resurrection. Paul believed in a resurrection. The hope of Israel, through their Messiah, they would see the resurrected Lord. They would, they would be resurrected. They didn't know anything about their Messiah dying and being resurrected. They'd struggled with that when it happened. But their hope was that a Messiah was coming and that they would live. On trial before Felix, Paul said, But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and of the wicked. That's why Paul's on trial. Paul is on trial. The Jews hated him, and he's in Rome for one reason. He believed in the Messiah that was Jesus and that there was a resurrection from the dead. Remember the Sadducees and the, and the, the Pharisees gr- fighting together and Paul brought the Pharisees to his side because they believed the law and the prophets? Sadducees rejected. Remember Paul looking at, at, at uh, um, Festus, actually Agrippa II, saying, you believe in the prophets, right? Because if you believe in the prophets, Agrippa, then you believe in a resurrection. Then you must know that there's no accusation that can stand against me. I just believe what the prophets say. He insisted to Agrippa, I'm standing on trial for the hope promise made by God to our fathers in 26.6. So this is Israel's hope. And this is what he's telling the Jews in Rome when he gets there. Verse 21. They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. Now don't you find that odd? How does the, the Jews in Rome, how do they not hear about what's been planned against Paul? One commentator I was reading said, they're lying through their teeth. It's just a lie. That could be. But it could be that after all of this time, they have no accusations to send to Rome. And even if they did, Paul got there first. Remember, it took Paul this long to get there because they had to winter. He's the first ship to arrive there anyway. We don't know one way or the other, but it looks like I'm we'll giving the benefit of the doubt. They didn't know. They hadn't received anything about you. Um, or if they did, they didn't want to bring it up. Paul, if we bring up, if we Jews in Rome, it might have been, that might have been a good argument to have in Jerusalem and Caesarea. But you want to bring that argument into Rome, we don't want to deal with it here. We got kicked out of Rome a while back, and now we're able to come back, and now Nero is teetering on the edge of sanity. Let's not upset Nero, because he's just about to go bonkers crazy. But verse 22, they said, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, these are Jews in Rome. They know about the church in Rome. They just must not know about a whole lot about what Christianity is. Concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. We want you to tell us more about this, Paul, because every time we hear something about it, it's spoke awfully about. And you, Paul, being a rabbi of the ilk that you are, are, you tell us about it. And they set a day for Paul. They came in at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them. Note this. This is what Paul does. Explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. To solemnly testify is not to stand up and, and go through a, a funny presentation of the gospel. If you want to solemnly testify, you're not going to be one of these hipster preachers walking around with your goatee and your shirt tail tucked out and your flip-flops acting like a fool. And trying to bring everybody to you so that you can bring this cool gospel and have a lot of good jokes and make Jesus look real cool. To solemnly testify is probably an 8 to 10 hour thing. We're going to sit down and I'm going to show you what you've asked to know. Solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. How do we know that? Because the kingdom of God is ruled over by who? Jesus who is our king. Who is our king? Jesus the Messiah. He's the king. He's the hope of Israel. He's come, he died, he was resurrected, Paul saw him, Paul's life was transformed by him. He's the hope of Israel, he is the kingdom, he's the king of the kingdom, and the kingdom is coming. So Paul would have explained all of this from the Old Testament, 
from his experience and from the teachings that would come about from the Apostle John and God's revelation of the future. So he's teaching them the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them, solemnly testifying, mind you, it's about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them. He wasn't just up there looking over the tops of his glasses and reading off this some academic exercise about the kingdom of God. Guys, I've written a paper for you, and I'm going to write, I'm going to read it. Have you ever been to an academic lecture? They're, they're terribly boring, and they're supposed to be. Usually it's a guy staring over the top of his glasses, and he's just reading a manuscript that he's written out. They're always good. Uh, you need a coffee in the midst of it. I mean, I remember learning about him when I went to DTS. I mean, what my Greek professor said, now, guys, today was my first semester. He said, and we've got an academic lecture from... from uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. From Don Carson. If you know who Don Carson is, he's one of the most brilliant men I've ever heard speak. And he said he's going to be talking, doing an academic lecture on love. Oh, that'll be great. <laughs> Snoozer. <laughs> but incredibly powerful as well. I don't think Paul is doing that. He didn't write a paper on the kingdom of God. He is trying to persuade. Do you know what it means to try to persuade? To try to persuade. If you love people and you want them to know the message, you're trying to persuade them. You almost have your emotions on your shoulders. You get your feelings hurt when people don't listen. And, and it's really difficult when you're, you're talking to them and you just get this blank look on their face. Huh? Or you're trying to explain yourself and, and, and you think that you've done a good job and they have a, something to say back and, or, or a question. You go, but I just said that. Let me say it again. Now you're trying to be loving. You're trying to, uh, you just, the whole thing is you're trying to persuade. This is what Paul is doing. He's got a heart for his own people, the Jews, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. It shouldn't be that hard to try to persuade people, and yet it is. And he's trying to do it. How? From the gospel of Matthew that he had published the week before? How do you preach Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets? All the predictions of it. All the, the, the ways in which the, the Old Testament prophets spoke of the coming Messiah. All of the ways when you're the Apostle Paul and you know the Old Testament. And then you know Jesus and you've connected the dots. As you and I should be able to do by now easily. If you've been in church. If you've ever had the challenge of reading the Bible. Looking at, here's what the Old Testament says. Here's who Jesus was in his time. They connect together. The dots are there. It's so simple. And we're trying to persuade. He's using the law and the prophets. In fact, uh, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 16, there's the parable or the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to Hades, not the final resting place. Hades is only temporary residence before you are, excuse me a minute, Dumped into the fires of hell. And there's Lazarus who's, on, who's being held by Abraham, Abraham's bosom. And they're having this conversation. Abraham is there talking to the rich guy. And the rich guy says, hey, Abraham, would you at least send Lazarus back to my, my brothers? Because I don't want them to die and come to where I am. It's hot in this flame, he says. So even Hades is hot. And that's not even the lake of fire. And Abraham says, no, they have... Moses and the prophets. That's all they need. They have the Old Testament. Sorry, Andy Stanley. The Old Testament is actually important. They have the law and the prophets. And then he says, and even if someone rises from the dead like Lazarus to go tell them, they're still not going to believe it because they won't believe Moses and the prophets. That's how important the Old Testament is. That's the law and the prophets and that's what Paul is preaching trying to persuade them. And he does it, and from the prophets, he's done this morning until evening. It's an all-day event. Not a three-point spiel like I do. Verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Have we seen that throughout Acts or what? That's a principle of evangelism. Some will listen, some will not. Maybe sometimes no one will listen. When they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Whatever Paul's one parting word was, here's what he says as they leave. I think Paul is watching people just get up and say, ah, you're out of your mind. Jesus is not the Christ. You're crazy. You haven't seen anything. You've seen 
forums like that where people just get up and walk out. I think while they're walking out, this is what Paul says. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And he quotes from Isaiah 6, 9. And by the way, context, Isaiah is converted in Isaiah chapter 6. He's converted to faith in Yahweh. He sees a, a vision of God. And after he's converted, you, the, one of the angels, the seraphim, uh, takes a, a burning coal and touches his, his lips, cleanses him. And then Isaiah overhears God talking about the need for preachers. And he says, here I am, send me. And so God tells Isaiah, okay, I'll send you. Here's what's going to happen. Go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. Isaiah might have scratched his head. This is 700 BC going, did I hear that right? Yes, Isaiah. Go preach to people who will never listen to you, but go preach nonetheless. Paul is using it, not 700 years prior, or I should say 700 years after, to the same people Israel. And so as they get up one by one to depart, Paul offers the curse from Isaiah, saying, you are just like the people 700 years ago. Who you hear, you heard what I've said, I've spoken all day about this. You hear, but you don't understand. You see, but you do not and will not perceive. You won't believe, so you can't believe. Think about that. There are people that won't believe throughout the course of their life, so at a certain point, they cannot believe. I want you to note here just a little side note. Because I say this whenever I can. Uh, people are, are confused about what and who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit. People will say, well, the Spirit told me. How do you know it was the Spirit that told you? There's only one way that you know the Spirit told you. If it's supported by Scripture. Notice when Paul says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah. And what follows? A quote from Scripture. Hebrews does the same thing. Book of Hebrews on two, three occasions says the Holy Spirit says, and then there's a quote from the Old Testament. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit says, read the Bible. But do not, please friends, do not come up with some cockamamie idea that you have been spoken to by the Spirit and you can't back it up with Scripture. You might feel led to do something. You might have prayed a prayer and said, God, please show me. And he may have, but be careful. If you can't support it with Scripture, I don't think we should say the Holy Spirit told us to think this, say this, or do this. I've used all my best judgment. I've used everything the Spirit of God has given me to make this particular decision. I think God led me to do this. But don't say the Holy Spirit told me to do this unless you can say it's right here in Scripture. Just be careful. And be careful of those who say those things. The Spirit of God tells me. I'm feeling the Spirit of God is telling me. Well, prove that. That just could just be indigestion. That could just be what you think, what you want. You know, we, we, we have things in our head. Lord, give us this. Give us this. We pray about it for a week or two or three. And we still feel good about that. And we feel like that's God saying, go for it. And then it fails and we wonder why. Well, you wanted it all along. Pray the antithesis. Pray the antithesis for what you want. See what happens that way. So he puts his curse on his people once again. Uh, Jesus quoted this passage in Matthew 13 and in John 12, quotes this Isaiah passage. I think it's a very scary passage. I wonder if we, if we live in that day to day. Go to this people and say, this people, we live in a world today where people are hearing, but they are not understanding. Even though they get the gist of it, what we're saying, believe in the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's, it's not rocket science. It makes sense, but they're not understanding it. They don't want it. Show me proof that there's a God. Well, look at the creation. Look at you. Look at the eye. Look at the ear. Look at your, your hands. Look at this machine right here at the end of my appendages. That, that's an amazing machine. We are walking miracles, providential. The way that God made us proof that there's a God, give me a break. Prove me that there isn't one. You've got the problem, not us. And so God explains as he explained to Isaiah in verse 27, for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, with, they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. So go tell them so that they will be held accountable. They're not going to listen. If they did, I'd have to heal them, God is saying, and I'm not going to. We live in the same world. 
Well, there'll be people that might listen to the gospel message. No doubt they trickle in. But today's church that I hear of that are so big in some of these countries, all you got to do is hear the preacher preaching and you realize, hmm. How disappointing. I heard once that the gospel is so big in, in Africa and people are coming left and right. And they're coming to a God, but not the God. Uh, if the theology uh, that's being preached in the churches I hear about is the theology that they're coming to know Christ, they're not. There are so few. And I make the joke in the past, I make it now again, is if the rapture of the church occurred today, I don't think anyone would notice. There just aren't that many people that really believe there's a lot of people going to church. But what's church today? What is church? Look at what qualifies as church. Look at the people we get lumped in with. Verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Now, verse 25 in your Bible should be bracketed too. Because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. When they heard these words spoken, the Jews departed, having great dispute among themselves. Doesn't change anything. We know they did. But back in verse 28, let it be known to you that this salvation that God has been, that God has been sent to the Gentiles. Paul has been going to the Gentiles after the Jews reject him. And he's doing the same thing here in Rome. Verse 30, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was preaching the kingdom of God. So he keeps on doing it. Why two years? think about two full years. Why was he there for two full years? Number one, it could be, and we don't know, by the way, it could be that there was just a backlog of cases. Two years. Had to wait for his case to come before Caesar. Did he come before Caesar? Look over at chapter 27. Uh, verse 22. Paul telling the, the, uh, the crew on the ship that's about to crash. He says, now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong, and, of whom, I, and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. So two years later, some have said, well, two years is a possibility that that was the statute of limitations. After two years, if your accusers from Jerusalem don't show up, your case is dismissed. There's no proof of that. We can't find proof of that. that, that there's this two-year limit. Um, I just think that, and, and maybe all of the charges were lost in the shipwreck. You ever think about that? Publius, you see, not Publius, but uh, Julius, coming up out of the deep water. I got him. I got the charges against Paul. We'll keep them, which are nothing. There's no charges there. So maybe they had to send back to Caesarea to get them redone. They had to come back. I don't know. Maybe where the two years is. But one way or the other, I think when it finally went before Nero, he looked at it and said, what is this? Get out of my sight. But he stood before Caesar. And I have no doubt, knowing Paul, he shared the gospel with that man. So he stayed in his, after he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness, unhindered. So this would have been Paul's house arrest. This is what he did when he was in prison. So let's look at a couple things. Some notes on the Apostle Paul. I want you to note that he refused to be stopped by anyone or anything standing firm in his faith and his mission to preach Christ crucified. I liked writing that out. He stood firm in his faith. By the way, I've got these pictures of the Colosseum. Colosseum wasn't even built in the days when Paul was there, but it looks cool. <laughs> It was built about 15 years later. He refused to be stopped. No one's stopping Paul, not till he dies. He suffered for long periods of time, yet on Malta he had three months of rest, respected by the Romans, honored by the prisoners and the islanders. And as I said, encouraged by God's people who came to see him on the way to Rome. By the time Paul reached Rome, though he was in chains, he was still unconquered. Think about that for whatever happens in your life. Whatever happens to our health, However we, we trickle into the kingdom of God, we will go in unconquered. Or will we? What are you going to let get to you? What is your kryptonite? The, the, you, you know, you yourself know how the devil could get to you. How are you going to get in? You're going to go in unconquered, chained, but unconquered, or just limping in? Paul went in running through the banner at the end of the for the football game, as it were. 
God blesses his people and he grants our desires. And I love this. He surrounds us with kindness as he did with Julius and the Maltese people with Paul. He meets our needs uh, like Paul did Publius in providing Paul or like Publius did for Paul, providing him a place to stay and the Christians at Puteoli. This is how God blesses us, surrounds us with kindness. He meets our needs. Three, he encourages us. God does encourage us. He sent an angel to Paul in the midst of a storm and Roman believers while traveling to Rome. I mean, I, I hate to admit it because it's, it's not quite so manly, but I really appreciate the encouragement that I get um, when I get it. Um, I don't think that I should have it all the time. I don't think that I should necessarily have it ever. But when I do, I mean, we had a, um, came into the office this past week and, and someone had dropped off some money for, for us on the staff here anonymously. Came in today and someone had brought lunch anonymously. Didn't know about that. Julie said, Julie knows who it is. And she said, you know, they're all in the back. And I went back there. I want to check the refrigerator. Here comes Paul and Doug. They come back there. We're all, hey, what's there for us? Great meal. It's awesome. It's just, who, who does that? I guess somebody did. People do. People come up and just say the right things at the right time. You don't have to be a preacher for it. You don't have to do it for the preacher. Do it for somebody. Uh, if we get outside of ourselves and recognize that there are other people hurting, maybe, maybe need encouragement, we can go up and find them. Hey, how you doing? Let me pray for you. Uh, here's $25, whatever it may be. God encourages us. He has a way of doing that. He delivers us from harm, as Paul did the, the shipwreck and the snake bite. He delivers us from harm. He might not always do this. There may be times when he doesn't do this. But when we need it, he does. And he blesses our influence among others. As Paul did the centurion, it was Julius, the prisoners, the Maltese people, Roman guards. This is how God blesses us. Paul desired to come to Rome and God gives us our desires. This is what he said to the Romans when he wrote the, the letter to them. He said, I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Longing to come to you. That's what Paul wrote three years prior. David said in Psalm 21, 1-2, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Note, Paul's desire to go to Rome was for the glory of God. It wasn't, man, I really want to go to on an Alaskan cruise one time. You know, that, that would be. God may or may not grant you that. But to go for the reasons Paul wanted, God grants those desires. Psalm 145, 19. God will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. Want your desires fulfilled? Fear him. It's amazing how, many, how few people fear God, yet they want everything from God. They give him nothing and want everything. So what happened to Paul after Rome? Um, this is where the story ends. It's a strange ending, isn't it? He's there. Let's look at it again. He, he's there for two years in under house arrest, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And that's it. In the year AD 61. So what happened to him? Here's what we know. While in Rome under arrest and awaiting trial, Paul wrote four epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He, when he writes these letters, he tells them he's in chains. We know that's when he was in chains. If these have been said to be the most, or these have been said to be the most Christological epistles that he ever wrote, which reveals how full of the Spirit he was when, he, when we deem that he was in his darkest days. When you're in the lowest time of your life, that's when you think of Christ, I think, in the fullest way. And Paul's letters, those, in fact, I want you to go home and read those these week. Read those. Read those letters this week. Those, and think about where Paul is. He's not in a dungeon when you, when you read 2 Timothy, he's in a dungeon. Here he's under house arrest. It's inconvenient. He's not able to go out and do whatever he wants but he because he is under arrest, but he's making the most of it. God has stopped this man who is, loves to go around and do what he does. No, you're going to sit tight. Okay, what can I do while I'm sitting tight? He writes, in his darkest days, he thinks the highest of Christ. He's accompanied by Aristarchus at the least and Luke. Those who visited him were Tychicus, Onesimus and Epaphroditus, and he thanks them for coming. He says in Philippians 1, 12 and 13, he says, now this is Philippians. He's writing to the Philippian people while he's in this Roman, while he's under arrest in Rome. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
Note what he doesn't say. I want you to know, brothers, I'm here. It's not fair. It's wrong, and I'm mad at God. And if you can, send some money so I can bribe my way out of here because I've got no business here. There's a gospel to be preached, and I need to get out and do it. No, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, the whole palace guard, and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Every Roman guard that was chained to Paul had to sit there and listen to the gospel. And my, get, my bet is, in fact, other passages speaks, speak of, I think I've quoted one of them, the household of Caesar, they're hearing and believing the gospel. And my guess is there were some guards that were wanting that duty. If you've come to know Christ, that's where I want to be chained. Give me him. That's your sermon audio for the day, right? It's believed that Paul arrived in Rome around AD 61. After two full years that he says, Luke says in 2830, was AD 63. Since Acts 27, 22 to 24 says that he would stand before Caesar, we believe that that is what happened. And he would have been let go. Doesn't say that. We have other clues. It's believed that Paul was indeed released and continued his evangelistic work in the eastern portion of the empire, around the Aegean Sea, around Philippi, uh, Berea, Athens, whether he made it to Spain is pure speculation. Some say absolutely he made it to Spain. He wanted to go to Spain. That's why I quote Romans 15. Clement, uh, 1 Clement 5 says he wanted to go to Spain. We're not sure if he did. He had time to. When he writes 1 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, I'll meet you in Ephesus. Meet you in Ephesus. That means I've gotten out, or as soon as I get out, I'll meet you in Ephesus. Since 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 18 speaks of an approaching second trial, and a tone of resignation in Paul's voice. Most conclude that Paul was rearrested around A.D. 67. And according to tradition, that that's the time he was beheaded in Rome by the Emperor Nero, along with Peter. So he got out. In fact, you see, you ever heard of the Acts 29 church? Really? Some of, some of you have? Acts 29. Um, <laughs> it never fails. When you say Acts 29, some people will go to Acts and go, there's no 29. Okay, just want to make sure. There is no Acts 29, but the, the, the point is, is that though it ends there, uh, every chapter and every age is writing the ending to the book of Acts. Every church, you and I are a chapter in the book of Acts. It, this is just the end of the beginning. The beginning of the church had an end and now it just continues on, hence Acts 29. I'm not saying it's a good or bad movement, but that's, that's kind of the point of it. How can we be like Paul? Number one, make your vision Christ's vision. I had to learn this the hard way. Make your vision Christ's vision. Because when you come out of seminary and you start a church, like, like uh, me and a few other folks did, you got a vision. you got to make sure, however, that your vision is God's vision. Because I make the joke often, it'd be like me going into your, your house going, your house, me, going into your house going, I've got a vision for your house. Here's how I think you should do it. So to go in to start a church and say, here's my vision, God. God's going to, uh, don't need your vision. I've got my vision. Latch on to that one. And you'll see that a lot. Got to have a vision. My vision, look, the vision is to preach the word of God and see people come to know Christ. That's the only vision I ever have now. Um, I used to envision a big building, envision lots of people, envision lots of church plants, and this, that, and the other. Yeah, that'd be great. But God said, no, 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 no. And I'm going to do this here at this point, and I'm going to interrupt it. Big hiccup here. You're going to start over again. You're going to do this. Now just get back to my vision, Lance, would you? God is not interested in all the big numbers we think that he wants us to have. Got to have six campuses. Got to plant 20 churches. Got to go into every co- No, you don't have to go into every country. Stand up with a Bible, preach God's word. Let him do the rest. It's really pretty simple. So make your vision Christ's vision. Paul said, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, Romans 15, 20. He longed to see the Jews and Gentiles reconciled as one body through the cross, Ephesians 2, 16. Colossians 3, 1 to 2, he says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. That's where our vision is, in heaven. Not on the news of the day. Number two, strengthen your faith every day of your life, as Paul did. Paul's faith was strengthened every day through every circumstance. Grow in your faith through study, study of the word, through worship, through prayer. Make sure your faith is stronger today than it was 10 years ago, than it will be in 10 years. 
Not everything we think will happen in our lives or ministries will happen. Paul likely envisioned himself preaching to large crowds and reasoning with intellectuals when he got to Rome. Yet God confined him to a single dwelling, chained to a soldier. <laughs> Imagine Paul sat there and goes, I did not expect this. But that's exactly what God put it. How many of you are sitting in your life now today and going, this is not where I thought I'd be? Maybe you are. In five years, some of you younger people, five, you're sitting here now, and you're, in five years, some of you will, will already be married and have a kid or two. And, and it might be healthy, the children might be healthy, and they might not be. You might endure a death of a child or of a spouse, or you might get sick, and you're sitting back and going, I did not expect this. You've moved back in with your mom and dad because your spouse died, and you're trying to raise two children. How about that? Faith in the midst of disappointments is what gets us through those disappointments. God knows what he's doing. As Paul said, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. First Thessalonians 5.24. Paul knew God's doing what he's doing. I'm just here. It's not my vision, it's his vision. And number three, be willing to fight the good fight until death. Fight the good fight. If you need to be fired up, about this point, go download the song Fight the Good Fight by Triumph and turn it up really loud. If you like rock music and you like a good shrieking voice and a hard driving guitar and drums, oh man, I found such great inspiration in that song as a kid. Fight the good fight every moment. How many of you know the song I'm talking about? All right, giddy up. A few of us. Be willing to fight the good fight until death. After just three days in Rome, Paul engaged the battle, inviting the Jews to his house for discussion. Let's get going. Got no time to waste. The only way, only way Paul's ministry could have worked was in being a prisoner. That's the only way he could have spoken to the Caesar. It's the only way he could have survived in Rome. Had he come to Rome a free man, how would the gospel have ever come to the emperor? He couldn't have. He's just some Jew he would never have listened to. Take your circumstances, even though they're inconvenient for you, and think, God's put me here for a reason. Something's going to happen out of this that's good. Better than my will. In our fight for truth, things are happening we didn't know would happen. All the saints send you greetings, Paul says, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The saints who had come from the household of Emperor Nero had been converted because Paul got there as a prisoner. Gone through all the rigmarole of getting there that way so that God could bring these people to faith. That's from Philippians 4.22. And finally, some principles of evangelism. I couldn't stop. See, it's not even eight, so I don't have to stop yet. Last slide, I promise. Last slide of Acts. If you never go through Acts again... Just principle of evangelism. Number one, from Paul, he preached, let us, as Paul did, preach Christ wherever and whenever. Wherever and whenever. You're in a, uh, a restaurant, you want to preach it to your, your waiter or waitress, do it. Wait till your food is served, but do it. <laughs> no, yeah, don't do it before. You don't know what they're doing to your food. <laughs> You're out on the beach, you're wherever, cop pulls you over. Hey, I know I was speeding. Can I share the gospel with you first? See what happens. Maybe you get two tickets. <laughs> you trying to bribe me with the gospel? Wherever and whenever. Paul never had a, a time where he said, you know, I can't do it. I'm going to take off. Number two, do it in love and humility, tactfully and with respect. None of this in-your-face evangelism. Jesus didn't get anybody's face with a red beat face with a baseball bat going, turn or burn. Do it with love. We preach God's word out of love for Christ and we're doing it in love for the people that we know are lost with humility. Don't act like you know everything. There's nothing worse than a, than a cocky, arrogant evangelist. Um, God's gonna, God causes them to fall on their face uh, humiliatingly. It's done according to the Bible. Teaching the kingdom of God as Paul did, complete with reasoning and persuading. Use the Bible. Always use the Bible. Quote scripture. Your testimony matters, but Scripture first, God's Word first. Paul preached to everyone, Jew and Gentile. There's no people that don't deserve to hear it. Don't make any distinctions. And finally, recognizing that not all will hear and repent. Matter of fact, it might be that none in the history of your evangelism ever hear the Word and repent. Can you live with that? Are you in it? You have to ask yourself, am I in this to reap a bunch of fruit and tell everyone all my, 
all the people that have come to know Christ through my evangelism? If you are, you're going to be disappointed. How about just going away from it going, I shared the gospel. I did what Jesus did. I did what Paul did. I did what the great men and women of the past have done. Did anybody believe it? I don't know. But it's not like selling a used car, folks. Now that I've given you the gospel, what do I have to do to get you in this relationship today? And you know, that's what some evangelists are taught. Okay, I've shared this, this, and this with you. What do I have to do to bring you to conversion? Usually at this point, people are there doing this, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They just want you to go away. Give them the gospel. I did what I did. Move on. Let's close in prayer. Lord, with Biff in our minds, we pray for him. Pray for his continued healing. Your, your will be done in his life and uh, in his family. Pray for encouragement for him. He may be the, the person that needs it most right now. Um, although maybe the surgery wasn't required, maybe it wasn't needed, it's, it's what happened. Your sovereign will will work through that in the midst of it, as we've seen in your word in our own lives. I pray, Lord, for, uh, for the study of Acts. 51 weeks and 28 chapters. Uh, We've heard it. We've listened to it. Maybe just one or two. Maybe all of them. But your word is meant uh, to feed us and nourish us. I pray that it would do that. If we need to go back and learn it again, I pray that we would. Thank you for the technology we have. Bless us in spite of ourselves, Lord. Uh, Bring us back to this place to worship your holy name, with or without me, for sure. But may that be what we do. Worship your holy name. All to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 